0: Hi, everybody. It's Joey Remini here from seekingbalance.com.au. I'm a vestibular audiologist and I'm a neuroplasticity therapist. And I take great interest in supporting people with complex dizziness conditions, any form of vertigo, and of course, tinnitus. So my, my clients are all experiencing unwanted sensations in their body that are medically a little bit ambiguous or difficult to resolve. And Often they're feeling like, what's wrong with me? Can I get through this? Is there a cure? You know, they will have tried lots of doctors. They're feeling stuck. And my role is to educate people about the power of our brain, the phenomenal architecture in our inner ears, the way our spinal column is involved in regaining our balance and sensations and proprioception, which we might talk about on this interview. And really giving people hope that there might be another way to heal. So I'm really excited today on the call. I have got a colleague of mine from the US, and this is Dr. Kristen Steenerson, and she's from the Stanford Balance Clinic. She's a clinical assistant professor of otoneurology. And what that means for me is I can really geek out and talk about hardcore inner ear balance stuff, which I really enjoy. So I'm super excited to have you on the call. Thank you for your time and welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Joey. Happy to be here.
0: yeah. So Kristen and I share quite a lot in common in that clients come to see us after a lot of efforts to try and figure out what the heck is going on in my body. Why am I feeling this vestibular disturbance or these sounds in my ears? And, you know, it's, I'll go to the GP. They might try holistic diets, naturopaths, kinesiologists, plenty of um, ear, nose and throat specialists, surgeons, maybe some general neurologists. And what Kristen and I share in common is, is we're kind of the very end line where we've, we've, we've studied a lot. We specialized in these particular conditions. Myself, I've studied the inner ear and Kristen is a medical doctor who knows the entire body as well as the inner ear. So it can take a long time before you meet someone like myself or Kristen. And we wanted to really talk about our perspective on what healing is, what recovery is, and why do we get stuck? So Kristen, do you want to just talk a little bit about your role? Um, how you're helping people in diagnosis and healing, and perhaps mention a couple of the conditions that you're commonly treating.
1: Absolutely, so couldn't have said it better. I am usually the end line for most patients. So. I'd say my typical patient has seen their general practitioner, they've seen their neurologist, they've seen their ENT, they've seen maybe a couple more just for good measure, and then they finally have come to me because they haven't had a really accurate diagnosis or at least adequate diagnosis where they feel like their symptoms have been heard and properly addressed. And so at that point, usually most of the diagnostic evaluation has been completed, meaning their scans have been done, their blood tests have been done, their examinations have been done. So really, it's up to me to try and sort out what is the most kind of important information that they're telling me and how does that play into the context of everything that's been done to help guide what is causing their dizziness. The most common things we see are the things that um, are most common in the general population, but are difficult to diagnose. So. Vestibular migraine is incredibly common, but incredibly Mm underdiagnosed. We also see a lot of persistent postural perceptual dizziness or 3PD, um, sometimes known as chronic subjective dizziness, which is the old term for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are, uh, it makes sense for why we see these so commonly, because these are chronic conditions that cause really intrusive sense of dizziness that have no gold standard tests that say 100% that's your diagnosis. And so there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of um, sense of concern that those symptoms will trigger for patients.
0: Yeah. And, and I think for good reason too, because these conditions can come up with quite normal results, but people are like, I do not feel normal. There's definitely something on, like you've missed something. and In essence, there can be a little bit of misinformation where one doctor might say, oh, it's coming from your neck or, it's many years or another doctor says no it's migraine another doctor says no it's triple pd and so these it, it can just be very confusing for everybody and to be fair it can depend on how we present and how we walk into a doctor's clinic and what we put weight on as to what the doctor might um, estimate is the diagnosis and that's why it can be a little bit different and misleading and you know sometimes people have both there is vestibular migraine, and there is triple PD. And, and that's okay. And we can still move forwards with recovery and healing. It just can be very heavy and difficult on the person getting all of those different perspectives and opinions.
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think that's one of the trickier things about vestibular disorders is that more often than not, you'll have two or more diagnoses. And it may be that one diagnosis spurred the creation of a second diagnosis. And so it can be really tricky when a patient's told that they only have one thing going on for them to say, well, that perfectly encompasses all of my symptoms or my timeline um, to the point of making sense to that person. So I completely agree. Sometimes maybe you did get the right diagnosis at one point, but you've evolved and so have your symptoms and so have the diagnoses.
0: Yeah. And something that I did want to chat about in this kind of chat together is what are really great questions to ask the doctor and what are potentially questions that we can't answer. It, you know, It's just kind of a disappointing topic to, to enter. So as far as seeing the general doctor and like going or the general neurologist and, and they saying, okay, I think you've got vestibular migraine. When can a person really trust that, believe that, and and feel that they can stop that goose chase for further answers? What, what's your perspective on that one?
1: So I'd say that um, a patient or a person who has seen a neurologist has a really good um, expectation in terms of having their neurologic system fully evaluated. So maybe something that's underappreciated is the power of the neurological exam. This is when the physician is able to look at all the different parts of the neurological system just by doing a few simple examination techniques. And what I think may be underappreciated is how powerful that exam is in giving us a high level of confidence that These different parts of your brain these different parts of your spinal cord these different parts of your nerves are functioning actually really well so it's really unlikely that we're missing something that is dangerous or scary or sinister and so that's actually a really good starting point for patients to understand is that power of the neurological
0: exam and why don't you share with our listeners like kind of how cool it is but also how simple it is and you know even just to be able to walk into a doctor's office, you have to have various neurological reflexes and and parts of the brainstem working. So simply walk in and take a seat, let alone make eye contact or respond, answer questions, listen here. So it's, it's interesting, your doctor's really getting a lot of information in those first 10 seconds. And do you want to speak on that a little bit, how simple it can be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's definitely a style component to doing this exam. So there are extremes of the spectrum that still accurately and adequately address the entire neurological system. So you may recall kind of what you think of of the quintessential neurologist who has their little doctor bag and they have so many little tools and they do this very extensive, very detailed kind of poking and prodding of the patient but on the other end of the spectrum you can actually get almost as much information information just by doing some really complete observations so in order for you to stand up we know that you have to have muscle groups that are working appropriately and symmetrically and with enough strength in order to lift you out of your chair without having to hold on to it not stumbling We know that certain parts of your balance system must be intact in order to maintain that ability to stand up and then stay in place then to walk across the room even to just change the chair we know that you have to have certain levels of your gait function that are working well and we just talking to you can see that your muscles in your face are working appropriately working symmetrically and your eyes are moving and that gives us um a really good sense of how well those brainstem structures, the cerebellum structures are working um, just by talking to you. And then in addition to that, what we um, can appreciate from a simple conversation is how well what's known as your higher order cognitive functions are working. So that's your ability to form thoughts and to give a, a good story and to be able to respond appropriately to our questions and have um A meaningful story that you're able to convey easily. So That actually gives us so much information about how the higher parts of the brain, the deep parts of the brain, the lower parts of the brain stem, as well as all of those other spinal cord and nerve structures are working.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of where I start to get a little bit excited because I have just written a book and Kristen's been very kind to review the manuscript. And, you know, some of the things that I recommend clients do for peace of mind, you know, it is really nice to get ocular motor function tested, which is when the doctor will take a look at how your eyes are able to work as a team. And also in conjunction with the ears, because for vestibular conditions, when there is some kind of injury or damage, we can really notice how the eyes are not quite keeping up with head movements. And that is something we can see in clinic. We can be chatting to you. We might get you to follow the finger or things like this. And it can I remember you were saying earlier when we talk, spoke off camera, I think sometimes clients are disappointed because the assessment isn't like thorough enough when actually it's super thorough. It's just very simple. And then if you're lucky enough, many of you will get an MRI scan as well, which gives, well, you can speak about what that gives you, but a lot of peace of mind. Do you want to speak about that as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the nice part about the exam, like you're already talking about, is that gives us a great sense of functionally how well your neurological system is working. And that's something that we can't capture very easily with many diagnostic tests that are out there. So it's very powerful in that aspect. But sometimes, you know, the brain is really plastic, the brain's able, able to accommodate for things. And so that's where an MRI can be helpful, because it gives us a very detailed structural picture, meaning we can look at the structures of the brain to such detail to feel much more reassured that we're not missing anything that might have been quiet or that might have been causing very subtle signs that very rarely the physical exam won't pick up on. And the MRI is just excellent at being able to do that. The technology is just fabulous now compared to even just 10 years ago. Mm. Um, And so the level of detail it's able to give us is really stunning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was actually reading a, um, an, an article just this week on the MBSR program, so the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. And clients or patients who did eight weeks of mindfulness body scanning training changed the structures of their brain. And it's just so cool to get these reminders. And you know that's a little segue to talk about healing. So we have to rely on changes that our body and brain will make so that they can adapt, accommodate and rehabilitate. And I've had clients with 20, 30 years of symptoms. And you know, 20, 30 years ago, well, I was a little girl, but also science didn't understand neuroplasticity. It didn't understand how powerful our brain and our body could be at adapting to the environment and adapting to change. And this is where science is starting to catch up. And we have things like functional MRIs to look at, well, is the, that gray matter changing in that area of the brain? What's, what's going on and why? And this is really where I've taken an interest in looking at well, how can we optimize our emotional regulation, which will in turn help our ears, our eyes, our spinal cord, and our brain all rehabilitate and adapt to any damaged pathways in the system. And sometimes we don't actually know where the damage is, especially when it comes to the inner ears. We can't test everything. But if you have gone through rigorous balance testing with a vestibular audiologist, they will be able to tell you if there's adequate function, residual function, so that you can take a staircase, do the shopping, drive a car, and really get back to normal living. So what we're looking at is not where's the damage, it's is there residual function? And that's where neuroplasticity comes in. And that's where we are seeing, well, I'm certainly seeing incredible recoveries and people who are returning to normal life, feeling at peace, feeling calm, and really getting their sense of self back. And that is a process. And that is what human beings are really designed to do. And the question is, why isn't it happening? And Kristen, do you wanna chime in a little bit of, you know, why are we seeing these worst case scenarios where people are having decades of symptoms and nothing's improving? So why do you think the neuroplasticity might be paused?
1: So we have a lot of different reasons to think about that. So I think first we can talk about things like genetic predisposition. I think there are some brains out there that are wired a little bit differently and that are much more susceptible to injuries and those injuries really taking hold and changing that functional ability of the brain. And so the ability to accommodate, to compensate is not as easily activated, not as easily efficiently used. Um, making it much harder for those people who sustain those injuries to be able to employ their neuroplasticity to help out there. We also know there are other barriers in terms of your environment. So things like anxiety or depression, first of all, anxiety and depression, we know are partially neurotransmitter disorders, meaning that the chemicals in our brain aren't functioning as appropriately as we'd hope that they would, and that can create symptoms like anxiety and depression. We also know that functional anxiety and depression are really big barriers to being able to participate in activities that really help to um, support neuroplasticity. So being able to do physical exercises, being able to tap into the emotional connections to what your body is experiencing in those symptoms. Those become much more difficult things for people to um, do when they have Significant levels of anxiety or depression. So those are um, important barriers to recognize because they can also um, be problematic in engaging that neuroplasticity.
0: Yeah, and so just to just to recap, neuroplasticity. Well, the communication between our neurons in the body is essential for life. And if we didn't have it, we'd be like a rock on the ground with you know no hearing, no talking, no moving, no nothing. And so we want to look at where the neurons potentially damaged anywhere in the body or brain. And we have billions, if not trillions of neural, neurons and neuron networks moving through our body. And we have so much residual function or neurons just sitting around not doing much, that even when there's damage, we can regrow new areas and rebuild lost function. And as Kristen was was speaking about, it's not just, can I bend over and do up my shoe? Can I take a phone call? Can I hear? Can I walk? Can I see? It's also, can I feel confident? You know, the feeling pathway. It's Can I can I feel courageous? Can I gently take myself to do something that feels scary? And what that means is that it's really a neuroplastic. It's, it's giving us a sense of, of sensory delight. It's allowing the brain to try new things, to be novel, to be excited, to be nervous. And actually neurologically and with those neurotransmitters, which are little particles moving between neurons, we need variety. We need enrichment. That's what we call it in, in the audiology realm. We need sensory enrichment. If we fall into maladaptive avoidant behaviors, right, this means that we're kind of going, no, no, I can't drive a car. And it's it's, it's not a medical fact. It's we're telling ourselves I can't drive a car. Therefore, we choose not to drive a car. Therefore, the brain lacks that enrichment to learn how to drive a car again, simply because we're not getting that, that gentle, safe, supported exposure. So I'm not suggesting you just jump out and do some long drive if you're not feeling confident, but it might be a conversation to have with a supportive person or a therapist. You might have a friend sit beside you. You might start by just sitting in the car and holding your hand on the wheel and not moving. But the importance is you're giving brain gentle, safe and supported exposure to activities, sensations, feelings, and environments that you would otherwise avoid. And therefore it creates a deprivation where the brain is deprived of that neurological stimulation. So it might sound complicated, but it's actually, it's really simple once you get into the process of using neuroplasticity. And once you realize, well, what's really matters to me, what's important to me, maybe I don't care if I can't drive a car. It's more important to me that I can play with my grandkids. So you really choose where you're building your function and where you're emotionally exploring variety instead of getting really stuck in that depression anxiety loop where we can't access other emotions anymore. So. It's very much an emotional, functional, social community. it's 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 a very holistic process. So coming back to what questions can't we ask doctors? So doctors are expert in a lot of things because the human body is amazing, and you guys are expert in that. what 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 can't we rely on our doctors for? You know where where does it where does the relationship kind of max out?
1: I think first, let's say the positive about what doctors are really good at answering. So we're really good at answering is this something that's going to harm me? Is this something that's going to kill me? Is this something that's going to shorten my lifespan? We're really good at figuring out those really dangerous questions and giving you a reasonable answer as to whether or not you're in the danger zone. Mm. So things like the MRI can help us feel really reassured. There's no signs of a tumor. There's no signs of infection. There's no signs of some scary disorder like multiple sclerosis potentially. And that can help them say, yes, this is a really good sign that there's nothing dangerous going on. Beyond that though, especially with the neurology, we have a much harder time with answering the detailed questions because we're learning so much about neuroscience and particularly on the individual level that it can be difficult to figure out what your personal experience is going to be with this entity, with this um, with this diagnosis and then how your brain's going to respond to it and then how that's going to play out in your functionality and your ability to get back to your normal things that you like to do or need to do Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of unknown there that we're still learning about ourselves in the medical profession to try and give more specifics
0: yeah And, and I think one question that I would steer clear of is like how long will this take we can't answer that you know I can't even answer how long it would take for me to heal. Cause I've had both vertigo and tinnitus and thankfully I've fully recovered. But if it happened again, I wouldn't know how long it would take me. So this is where I like to bring in the actual spiritual component of healing, which is believing what your body's capable of. So you don't want to limit yourself and say, well, I can't do it because that kind of ends the conversation and ends the potential for your body to really show you what it's capable of. So Belief is not necessarily a religious thing at all. It's more, do I believe in my body? Do I believe in in my my place in the planet at the moment? And can I step back and say, well, maybe for me right now, this is where I need to be. This is part of my healing. I need to feel this way for, for, for a while until my brain is ready to shift its chemical interaction and move in a different direction. And part of that is very unknown. It's a bit mystical. It's a bit of a mystery. It's different to every person. But I feel like having that sense of, of spiritual connection to your body, to the miracle of your biology, it really, it changes your perspective and it can change your perspective immensely. And I think it's also important to, to be grateful and honour the doctor's expertise without burdening all of our problems onto the doctor, which, is, which, which in a sense is kind of unfair. It's, it's a big space to hold. And I think being able to sleep well at night knowing you've had medical clearance you trust your doctor, you understand your investigation results, and you can, can recognize that from a physical perspective. There is no medical intervention required right now. I mean, that is a gift. That is, that, that is the real gift of the medical profession. Um, and is there anything you wanted to add to that, Kristen?
1: Yeah, I'd say too, you know, um, as doctors, we're trained to try and answer as many questions as possible to help you as much as possible. We've really been trained on this kind of fix-it model of we want to do everything we can to try and give you an instantaneous answer and instantaneous treatment. And that's something that neurology really struggles with because we're just not advanced enough in terms of many treatments and opportunities, but particularly in terms of these long-term questions and trying to predict what it's going to do for you in particular. So in, in some ways, I like to say, you know, have a little bit of compassion, too, for your doctor, because they really feel bad about the fact that they can't answer that, because that's not something that, that is not the fashion that they were trained in. They were trained to say, oh, infection, antibiotic, okay, yes. this, that, we've got the answer. So it, this is equally frustrating and, um, and, and uh, disheartening to the physician
0: as well. Yeah. And I like to really take a nice spin on it. And I discuss this a little bit in the book I've written that how about we view our doctors as part of our research team, as part of our investigation team, where instead of saying to the doctor, fix me, cure me, tell me what to do, which is really actually giving our power away as the client or patient. And we're putting too much onto the doctor, which is really quite unfair and and in a sense, unrealistic. And it's like saying, okay, doctor, Tell me about my brain, tell me about my ears, tell me if I'm safe, tell me if I need urgent medical intervention. PS, the worst outcome would be that we try and meditate to get better and we really just need surgical removal of a tumor, right? You need to get the information and use the doctors and be grateful for that. And then step back and say, okay, well, what can I do? What's going on mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for me, the invisible stuff in my world and what I think, what I feel, what I believe believe it or not, that fires your neurons. So we are directly involved in how our neurological networks are formed, are firing, are exploring, are adapting. And too often, I think we get stuck in that physical tests, diagnoses, diets, exercises, physical therapy, you know, it's very physical, right? And there's just so much more to explore. So looking at thought patterns, looking at worry patterns, looking at self-doubt, looking at the variety of emotions, all emotions being healthy and welcome, but we don't want to get stuck on any one or two emotions, such as the depression and anxiety kind of dilemma. We want to be able to experience it all and to have a healthy way of experiencing it, feeling it, and moving through it without feeling it every day, 24 hours a day, nonstop, right? We want to give those neurological networks variety. So I wanted to chat with you also a little bit about What's your, do you, do you have like your, your favorite way of describing neuroscience or neuroplasticity to your clients? Like, do you have like a little easy um, description? Yeah, I think
1: I think we actually share an analogy here. So what I like to say is that, you know, your brain is primed to protect you. It's trying to keep you safe at all times and all places. And so if you have a sudden dizzy attack, my special specialty is within dizziness, um, that's a balanced challenging event, meaning your balance, your sense of gravity, the one thing you've been able to rely on your whole life has suddenly changed on you. And in a way that is most likely unpredictable or is something that is nonsensical, meaning your brain just can't wrap its its head around um, why this is happening. So the most obvious next move by your brain is to say, okay, this must be something dangerous. So I'm going to ring all the alarm bells and say, something's wrong, something's wrong. Let's get that fight or flight response, that threat response activated to protect me. Mm. That works beautifully in instantaneous settings. You know, you misjudge the sidewalk, you trip, you're about to fall. You're able to have super fast reflexes to protect you. And then you're able to get back to your normal sense of gravity and sense of walking. But when that sensation is prolonged, and again, for ununderstandable understandable Reasons and it's really confusing to you why now? Why is this happening? Why is it continuing? Mm. It creates and then a new pathway. And I think this is where we start to use the same analogy where we're used to having this one pathway that is our normal balance sense, and then this new sense of dizziness actually etches out another pathway. Mostly, I think, for the brain to just get used to it, to say, okay, well, if this is the new way it is, that's the way it is. So we're going to just accept this and create this new pathway. But that new pathway then has new connections. And those new connections have higher connections to our anxiety center. So that anxiety sense goes up. And then sometimes it has Um, other sensory inputs that get locked in there so sometimes visual motion is more difficult um, lots of crowds spaces those can all start to become more triggering to you or just more problematic to you than before and so that new pathway is what we're really trying to de-emphasize so that you can get back to that more kind of typical regular pathway that you're used to before and there are many different ways to try and retrain the brain to use that more original pathway
0: yeah and, and this is where i want everyone listening to have some form of hope because even if your original normal pathway is gone let's say it's devastated whatever's happened we can't rebuild that pathway it's just damaged right it's not the end of the world so you your brain will have built a new pathway and if you're feeling triple pd or vestibular migraine frequently that pathway probably represents a sensory conflict which means what you're feeling in your skin what you're sensing in your ears and what you're seeing in your eyes doesn't add up, right? It's it's distorted. And that's become a very strong pathway that your brain has built as it's attempting to adapt and as it's firing all of those false alarm signals saying big threat, I'm dying, this is a big deal and and it's really going hard on those neural path- pathways because that is a survival protective mechanism. Where the hope lies is that we can actually teach the brain using self-soothing, self-reassurance and oodles of loving kindness, we can actually get that false alarm system to, 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 to move back a bit, maybe not switch it off completely, but to just weaken. And we can actually say, right, well, what does normal feel for me? I've got to rebuild it. So I guess it, I feel confident. When I'm normal, I feel steady. When I'm normal, I feel calm. Perhaps I even feel a bit of joy. And the neuroplasticity piece that I support my clients with and that, that my book focuses on is about saying, figure out what normal is, not what it isn't. Okay? It's not an absence of dizziness. It's actually a, a true sensation of steadiness. And you might feel that in your feet. Feeling steadiness in your feet can then become a daily practice that enables you to emphasize that neural pathway, cultivate it whenever you need it. So I've had clients who have been crossing a, a busy road and they've gotten to the center and they've had to wait and there's like trucks coming. And they've had to cultivate their sense of steadiness in their feet to not freak out in the middle of a busy road. So you can do it when you need it. And you can also do it, neuroplasticity is most effective when we have intensity, which means we really focus on it with all of our concentration. When we have duration, which means we focus on it for a long period of time, maybe not five seconds, maybe we'll we'll aim for a minute or five minutes. And frequency. So the more we practice feeling the steadiness in our feet with intensity, duration, and frequency, the more those neural fibers create stronger, more hardwired, longer lasting pathways So with time, you feel steady in your feet all day long and you don't even have to try anymore. It becomes the new normal. So I hope that kind of helps people understand and get a little idea of the science behind why we can get stuck. Because if we don't believe we can ever feel steady in our feet, we never get practicing. We never get started and we truly never fire that neural network. Okay, so belief is super important. And I have so many discussions on my website about that. It's often overlooked. And what we believe we want to feel and we practice feeling, we will fire those neurons more often just by by doing it, by going through it, by experiencing it. So you can't heal by reading a book, unfortunately, but you can get started and inspired by a book. This brings me to our next question, Kristen, is what's the difference between healing and cure?
1: Ah, that's such a good question. So that's definitely a topic that comes up a lot in my clinic. And at first, I'm always a little bit Saddened because we technically don't have a cure for vestibular migraine or for 3PD or for many vestibular disorders, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a pathway to healing. And so, what that means is that there are ways for us to train your brain, for you to train your brain to help engage this new sensation, to create a sense or a narrative that helps that sensation feel more at home, and then de emphasize that so that it's not as intrusive, so that you start to feel more like yourself, so you start to feel more like you can do everything you need to do or want to do. And that to me is healing, that you're able to reconcile those intrusive sensations while also feeling like you're back to your normal self.
0: Yeah. And, and I can speak firsthand. I've gone through it, which is kind of where part of my apprenticeship was. It wasn't just going to university and seeing clients i feel really lucky in hindsight i got to feel it and i got to 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 like feel that stomach drop and and feel the distorted moving sensations in my brain and and you know the dizziness moving my head all of that the spinning rolling over i had bppv actually as well it's it's awful let's face it it's horrible your brain's like what's going on freaks out and if we never have a pathway forwards beyond the freak out the freak out actually becomes the normal right so it's,
1: Absolutely.
0: it's about being really loving, kind and gentle with yourself. It's about not putting too much pressure on your medical team because it's unfair and it's unrealistic. It's about getting the medical clearance and then saying, all right, now I can take some fresh air and I can say, well, what's going on for me in my inner world, mental, emotional, and spiritual. How do I want to feel and how can I make that a daily practice? How can I support myself to rebuild new pathways, which for me, that's healing. It's rebuilding. It's adding. To your neurological system, and cure to me kind of comes into the elimination. It's like, well, I want to remove the dizziness. I want to remove the tinnitus. It's so cure. The difference for me is one's deleting and one's adding. We can't delete the symptoms. If we could, Kristen and I would. I would have done that. <laughs> so we can't. So it's like, okay, well, the elimination's not an option. How can we acknowledge that the dizziness is there and just basically de-emphasize it? and rebuild stronger pathways that override it and become louder than the dizziness and I have seen so many people heal not only to back to it a sense of normal and confidence but I've had clients say actually since going through conscious neuroplasticity my balance is better than it ever was I feel more happy I feel more confident because previously it was just like by default whereas now I do it on purpose and I'm more in control of it so they've they've kind of They've gotten even better than before the, the condition started. So I really want to um, kind of get people excited about neuroplasticity. Your body's amazing, all of us.
1: Absolutely. I think that talks to the power of mindfulness. And just when you have a purpose, when you have a focus, it's amazing what you can create, what you can emphasize and strengthen um, that maybe you never even realized you had the capability of doing. But because you're finally dedicating focus and energy to this specific task, you can really make amazing changes.
0: Yeah. And, and I, call, I also feel like I want to say for people out there who have had their symptoms for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years, it's not your fault. A lot of this discussion hasn't been happening. You know, I've, I've only been on the internet doing this, I think, for four years. And so it really is understandable if you never knew neuroplasticity existed and you certainly had no idea how to implement it because as far as I'm aware, there's not many people out there teaching about neuroplasticity or how to implement it. It's a very new conversation. And you're welcome to join the process, regardless of how long you've had your symptoms. That's actually not a barrier. You can have had it for 50 years, and you can still retrain your brain to build new pathways. It's a very exciting um, concept. A little bit like we have 80 or 90 year olds who get a cochlear implant. You know, age is actually not a barrier. We can keep retraining the brain. It's extremely exciting. One thing I wanted to chat with you about, because this is this is really where you've got way more um access to this research than me, is apparently triple PD sensations are quite common in the general population. You wanna do you wanna speak to that research project?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, first, maybe just a little bit of one oh one on the vestibular system. So when we think about special sense systems, meaning your vision from your eyes or taste, those are usually um, bits of information that are processed in very specific parts of the brain. Mm. The vestibular system, is different from all of those other special senses. Instead of having just one part of the brain, it actually uses both sides of the brain plus multiple different points in each one of those sides, known so as the hemispheres. And we think that's because the vestibular sense, being able to maintain your balance, maintain walking on two feet, is such an important. Um, mechanism for us to use that you need as many different parts of your brain to be redundant or to be able to be there in case there's any damage to one of those other small parts of the brain, that you have this information spread all over. As a result of that, because you have so many different potential points of processing in your brain, that means you have a lot of different connections that go to those other points in the brain. And so, this interesting article that just came out was talking about how 3PD, so persistent postural perceptual dizziness symptoms can actually be quite common in the general population without having the kind of classic story of 3PD or, or, or much less a formal diagnosis of 3PD. And so that means that many people experience senses of imbalance or dizziness when they see complex visual stimuli, meaning complex patterns, busy crowds, grocery stores, and um, they'll get that sense, but it may be brief, it may not be as sustained, it may not be as functionally limiting, but they're still answering that, oh yeah, I've had that, that bothers me and that's that's been problematic for me. Um, and so what that's so interesting is that it's probably highlighting to us as physicians and researchers that all of those little pathways that have these tiny connections are making those senses much more common than we appreciated before. And so it may not be as kind of scary or alien or um, uncommon as maybe was previously thought, because our brains are set up for having these connections that may cause that crossover between visual and vestibular
0: inputs. And I guess another way of looking at it is like, the more connections we have, that that's that's delivering balanced information sure the more redundancy we have which means it's it's very robust at, at recovering and having multiple pathways to choose from but it also means there's more room for error so this is a lot more information moving and you know i would say triple pd symptoms can also be similar to like that drunk hungover feeling it's like you know nothing's quite solid and making sense very very tired feelings that jet lag feeling um I know I've had these sensations. Kristen, have you had some triple PD type sensations?
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of people like to say brain fog or just the sense
0: of this kind of cotton
1: brain, where things are a little bit fuzzy. You don't feel as quick or as accurate in your processing speed. And there's just this sense of not feeling grounded. Everything's a little floaty, a little rocky. And I think everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but I think a lot of people have experienced that based on, you know, just how you like to celebrate and that kind of a thing. Um, But it's when it's easy. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, So in those contexts, I think it's very easy for your brain to understand what's going on. You say, okay, well, I did this, and so A plus B equals C. So this is why I'm at this new state. But when it comes on more insidiously or more unexpectedly, that's where you start to get the alarm bells and that's where it starts to become this more kind of threatening or concerning sense that maybe we don't need to be as threatened or concerned about. But that's a harder distinction for us to make without more information.
0: Yeah. So again, just to validate what you're feeling is real if you're experiencing triple PD and it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong to make it chronic and that we're not normalizing it. But what we are saying is it's a normal part of healthy brain function And you don't have to live with it forever and we can actually create a context where those sensations are meaningful such as well i'm sleep deprived i'm jet lagged i'm busy and therefore my brain's making errors that makes sense we part of healing is normalizing what you're feeling and why and for many of my clients actually it's a lot of deep long-term unresolved emotions that are suddenly starting to surface and they need processing and the brain's struggling with that and that's where some of the deeper emotional work can be really essential for, for healing and allowing the brain to rearrange itself. Um, I wanted to talk with you also just that we were speaking about getting stuck. You know, people are like, oh, will I ever get better? And and actually I've been there. So, you know, I can speak from a personal place. I've definitely felt suicidal. I felt like life's not worth living. It's been really hard. And this was in my late 20s. Um. And I remember just getting so, 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 so low. I came home to visit my mum. probably didn't even know where I was going or why, like just floating through life aimlessly in a sense. And I sat on the kitchen bench and I just looked at my mum. I think I burst into tears and I was like, I'm so unhappy. I'm just so unhappy right now. And it was like this dip in my life. It was a low point. And I also remember feeling, I really hope like a truck or something takes me out and I die and i never have to live again. I was really dramatic. But at that point, right, I was in my low point. I wasn't doing suicidal behaviours. I was was healthy suicidal thoughts. I was in a low point and I realised I need to make change. If I don't make change, you know, my life's not moving in in a really great direction. It doesn't feel good. And I had to start having some difficult conversations. Being stuck is actually quite powerful because it can be like the on button where we start realising it's more painful for me to remain here and to do nothing about it, that's more painful for me than to start saying, all right, what's going on in my thoughts? What's going on in my emotions? What's going on in my spirituality, my connection, my beliefs? And am I ready to start making little trial and error experiments to start changing the way my brain and my body are communicating? So we, I guess Kristen and I wanted to say it's okay if you feel stuck, and it's actually part of healing. You, you kind of got to go down the slippery slope until it's so painful, you can't stay there any longer, and you start to rebuild yourself. Fall apart, break up into a million pieces, and rebuild yourself back up again. Did you want to speak to that a little bit, Kristen? And are you seeing people in that stuck phase in your clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So I think
1: emphasizing that everyone has their own timeline, and that that timeline is not a judgment, that timeline is not something that we can predict either. So there's some reason that you're stuck there is it because you need enough of that motivation in order to move forward to the next stage you know that's possible but I think that it's important to emphasize that you're always moving forward even if you're in the stuck circumstance um, because that's helping to give your brain more experience more kind of fodder to move on from that point to getting to this more kind of healing track yeah again self-compassion is just so important
0: yeah, I think I remember hearing a, an interview or reading an article quite a while back just on the importance of grit, like like really having mm-hmm. the capacity to hang in there and just go, okay, well today's difficult and that's okay. Just because today's difficult doesn't mean tomorrow definitely will be. Here's my little graph I I made. This is after our conversation the other day, right? I
1: and love this graph, yeah.
0: Yeah, and 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 this timeline could for some people mean 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, for other people it might mean one week, right? it might mean a month it you know for my clients it's it's typically somewhere between 3 months and 24 months everyone is different and i think the more supports we have the the capacity to offer ourselves reassurance to actually implement loving kindness it means that as we get down here we can actually be with ourselves in that dark place we're not pushing it away we're not saying no i don't want to feel this you know I want to distract myself. I want to numb myself out. We start to say, okay, you know what? I'm really unhappy. Mom, I'm really, un-. we stay with the feeling. And from that place, our brain starts to actually change because we're not pushing it aside, avoiding it, distracting it, or isolating ourselves. We're, we're connecting, we're growing, we're feeling. And, and one of the, I often say to my clients, feeling is healing. It doesn't matter what you're feeling. But the fact that you're connected to the authentic reality of that emotion and your brain's registering it, you're actually able to move forwards and move through the feeling instead of getting stuck. And I think we're often stuck when we're not truly feeling where we're numbing or dissociating or leaving the body. And many of my clients, and I suppose in my own journey too, this experience of dizziness or any sense of movement that that doesn't, doesn't really match reality any sense of vertigo or tinnitus where we hear sounds in our body that don't match reality. These can actually be our body's way of calling us back home because we've actually started to leave the body. We're, we're living life on a conveyor belt. We're not really thinking about what matters. We've lost that connection to our soul and alignment to our values. And we're just going through the motions of life. And our body's like, what's going on? You're abusing me. You're not letting me sleep enough. You're not nourishing me. I'm, You know, I'm struggling. And the body's calling us home to have some of those difficult conversations we need to nourish our body our neurons need to be fed our muscles need to be fed we need to sleep and I think we need to have a sense of belief in ourselves I think it's really important to have meaning and purpose and passion things that excite us things that make life worth living and while that might sound cliche it actually fires neurons that we need for our healing if we're locked in fight flight freeze it inhibits our capacity to use neuroplasticity because what the brain is saying is there's something going on here. That's very dangerous. Maybe it's a saber toothed tiger. Maybe it's something, you know, that's going to kill me. I'm not going to start learning how to build new pathways right now. I'm going to sort out this threat. So it it pauses our, our neuroplastic problem solving capacity. So that was a very long winded way of saying it's really important to, A, recognize how powerful your body is, your brain, your neurons, all of it, your eyes, your ears, and that you actually probably, all of you listeners have probably have more control in your healing than you realize. And that can be terrifying because suddenly it's like, oh my God, the doctor can't do it. I'm responsible for making some changes, right? I get it. That's scary. Just because it's scary doesn't mean you can't do it. And your doctors want to support you. They want to encourage you. They want to see you making these changes. And so I always say to my clients, if you do choose to go down the neuroplasticity route, keep sharing your progress with your doctors. Talk to them. Give them the updates. Make it, make it a team journey. Make it a community effort. So yes, we have to do it on our own. You know, Kristen has to change her neurons. I've got to change my neurons. You've got to change your neurons. We do it alone, but we do, it doesn't need to be lonely. So would you like to speak on this, Kristen? And have you got any little piece of yeah. wisdom?
1: Um, I, if you could put the graph up again or the plot, yeah. that would, I think. So I really like to tell patients, you know, we so commonly, so I have patients who usually are seeing me in this first dip. You know, they've had the onset for a while and then they hear a diagnosis and they hear a plan and they get this instant relief. They feel so, so much better because they know there's, There is something nameable going on. This is experienced by other people. I have a direction now of things that I can do to try and improve this. But inevitably, there will be another dip that happens. And that just happens. That's part of the the change that brains have to go through.
0: So I try and prepare. Can you just pause that thought? Yeah. I think I need to talk to them to see the graph. So she's talking about we get the initial slump, something goes up, we we, we, we we freak out, it feels awful. Then we'll go see a physical therapist or a doctor and we'll be like, okay, there's hope, I've been given home exercises or a hearing aid or a medication to try. And we, and we get this kind of like, this buzz of like a new boyfriend, it, like it feels exciting in the beginning. And then we start to realize, oh my God, it's wearing off. It's, I, I don't feel as good as I thought I would, you know, this, this magical trick or device or drug or exercise hasn't given me what I thought it would. And then we go into this process of being stuck and trying everything under the sun. And that's where you're at. So I'll just give it back to you there.
1: Yeah, no problem. So what I what I try and tell patients is okay, we have a way forward. You know, what you tried before was very reasonable. There are other things that can still be tried, but these are self-generated exercises that are going to use a lot of self motivation, engagement. Really it's all on you but then i also talk about this kind of undulating after effect that is so common is that you're going to have improvements you're going to have days that are much harder and that may be for sensible sensible reasons like you didn't sleep well your eating's off you're dehydrated there's something really stressful going on at home or work Um, there could be a new illness that you're experiencing whatever or sometimes it's just something you don't know why, but it is randomly worse that day. That can happen.
0: Yeah. That's
1: okay. That's understandable. That's a normal pattern that most people experience. Because what I hear so often is I'll have the initial consultation. Someone says, yeah, I'm feeling much better. But then I had this dip.
0: Yeah. And now I'm
1: so worried I'm going to get stuck again that I think the diagnosis is wrong. I think there's something really terribly wrong with me. So I don't know what to do. And kind of going into that freak out mode, that hypervigilant mode so I try and counsel as much as possible before, but expect that. That's okay. That's normal. And then that can hopefully help reduce some of the kind of extreme sensations.
0: So coming back to the graph, it's this, it's, it's, it's gradual improvement over time, but we have setbacks. So we try a new thing, we feel excited, we do really well. And, and then something happens and we fall off. And I have some clients who, who go through my neuroplasticity program, which is online learning. And, and those those they'll do great. They'll, they'll go back to their version of normal. And then maybe a year later, they're like, you know what, I'm losing it. Like, I'm not taking care of myself. I'm not being kind to myself. I'm putting external pressures on myself. I'm trying to strive and prove myself to the world. And, and basically, I'm leaving my body behind. And then they'll go back and they'll re-engage in the process. So you're allowed to have ups and downs. You're allowed to have days that are super easy and high and blissful and Beautiful and joyful, and you're allowed to have days that are awful and scary and frightening and lonely. Because remember, it's all coming back to that sensory enrichment. It's actually the brain's designed to feel guilty, to feel shame, to feel depression. It's not actually abnormal. It's just abnormal to hold on to that one feeling for a prolonged period of time. So, having difficult moments, difficult mornings, difficult days is okay. It doesn't mean you're going backwards. It's probably a sign your neurotransmitters are in a flush. And that, that's part of human existence because it's, it's unrealistic to want to be happy, calm, steady and clear thinking every day, all the time with, with, with no interruption, right? Unlikely. <laughs> Write me a letter if that happens to you. Um, so yeah, we, we just wanted to let you know that think about your personality. If you're going to need a support team, you're going to build a support team to help you with those dips, help you with those setbacks. Um, I I have a whole section in my program on have a plan for good days, have a plan for medium days and have a plan for difficult days. Who are you talking to? Who who are you reaching out to? What are you using to support yourself? How are you supporting your brain through that dip? And and this is where we have to go into the mental, emotional and spiritual aspect of healing. And these are, are realms where you can share with your doctor and your doctor will listen and encourage you. They'll probably love to hear it, but they can't do it for you. And I think this is where, People can feel depleted, they can feel stuck. Um, And it's not just medical doctors, it's also alternative health professionals. We're all in the same boat. We can't do your mental, emotional, spiritual work for you. We can support you and cheerlead. We can offer you guidance or feedback. But at the end of the day, only you know what you want to feel. Only you know what you actually feel and only you know how to bridge that gap. How can I go from what I feel right now towards what I actually desire to feel? And that's a super personal process.
1: Yeah. And I'd say, you know, we're called providers for a reason. So we can provide ideas and concepts and action plans, but we're in, we can't substitute. So the action has to be on your, your part in order to see those effects and to feel those effects
0: yeah well thank you so much for sharing your time i greatly appreciate it i love what you do i love that you've found me and reached out to me it's really it's really exciting the world's becoming a very small place um for anyone who is searching to learn more about this go to my website there is there are so many conversations articles my youtube channel obviously so visit seekingbalance.com.au i always recommend people start with the free starter kit just Take little tiny steps and, and see how you want to learn because this is an educative process. You have to learn how to use neuroplasticity. It's not going to fall off a tree and hit you on the head. You'll, you'll have to put time aside and you'll have to get support networks and resources that work for you. I have I have options on my site. Go and check that out. If I was to, to leave this conversation, I think I would say, Trust your medical clearance. If you've got medical clearance, trust it. Okay, doctors know what they're doing. They are experts. And then trust your brain. Trust the power of your brain to adapt and just give it a chance. That will be my take-home message. So Kristen, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, Did you want to share a link with anybody or um, the Stanford Balance Center link or something like that?
1: Um yeah, I can give you that. Um that'd be helpful resa- if you want?
0: would be helpful resources or? on your on your website, right? On the
1: Yeah, we have some compilation videos and explanations and other educational websites that we have found helpful, including seeking balance. Um so happy to share that with everyone.
0: That'll be great. So we'll we'll put some links down with some educational resources. Um trust yourself, believe in yourself, you've got this. I think these are great mindsets to start off with the healing. Remember, we're no longer looking for a cure because you don't need it. So it's a little bye for now. It's a huge thank you to Kristen. And we'll pop links into the bottom of this, this interview. Bye for now.
1: Thank you.